There is abstract art and there is realism. There is street ball and regulation basketball. There is chaotic worship and worship that is decent and in order. There is the if it feels it, if it feels good, do it lifestyle. And then there is the walking in the footsteps of Jesus lifestyle. And when it comes to building projects, directed and supervised by the Father, a series of well-defined patterns emerge. We see this in both the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And it becomes clear as we examine the scriptures that the abstract, chaotic, do-it-how-you-like-it approach is clearly not the mark of our divine architect. He likes his buildings built according to his plan, and he likes them built according to his specification. And since Romans 15, 14 says that the things written aforetime were written for our learning, one of the things we're going to do this evening is go back to the Old Testament and notice this one of the most obvious lessons, and that is that the master builder likes a plan. He likes a form, he likes a model, a blueprint, a pattern, if you please. That's what we're going to look at, and I'd like to read just Deuteronomy 12, a few verses from Deuteronomy 12 to introduce our study before we go to God in prayer. Deuteronomy 12, look at verse 13 and 14. There the Bible reads as follows. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Brothers and sisters, I declare unto you that that is pattern lingo. And it's not the only time, but it's something you find all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another way we've uh, put this, we find in 1 Peter chapter 4, 11, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Another way that we have uh, phrased this is that we will speak, or the Bible speaks, and we're going to be silent, or the Bible is silent. That's one of the things that makes us unique as God's people, as members of the Church of Christ. We're going to notice a little bit about that uh, this afternoon. We're going to notice this idea of the pattern. We're going to look a little bit more about this idea of the altar and how important it was that it be built in this one particular place and by the pattern, by the book. Seems as there is a very strange disconnect when we talk about the idea of patterns and blueprints and models and forms. It's not that the world can't understand that idea, not that man cannot fathom and comprehend this thought. Uh, just recently, uh, I was made aware that uh, Clean Films is one of these uh, companies that uh, will take movies and they will clean them up. They will take out all of the, the profanity, all the nudity, and the inappropriate scenes 
I think it's uh, started by a lot of these uh, Mormon groups in, in Utah. And then they would advertise them, sell these uh, movies or rent these movies. Well, this has just been declared illegal and all these companies have had to close down and shut down their businesses because um, these Hollywood screenwriters have felt as if they have been violated. Listen to what some of the words. This is from uh, the president of the Directors Guild Association. He says, these films carry our name and reflect our reputations. So we have great passion about protecting our work against unauthorized editing. Another man was saying, one of these people in this industry, audiences can now be assured that the films that they buy or rent are the vision of the filmmakers, of course with all their filthiness, who made them and not the arbitrary choices of a third-party editor. The judge in the case said, film sanitizing causes irreparable injury to the creative artistic expression in the copyrighted movies. So to sum it up, the complaint was about unauthorized editing of the intellectual property of the Hollywood screenwriters. Now, in this particular instance, I don't have much sympathy for these folks, but they understand the principle, and the principle that's being upheld is this is their product, and nobody else should have the right to edit, to add, or to take away from it. They've set it up, and it should be held, upheld in the way that they have installed it. But, you know, it's quite another thing when men decide that it's okay to edit the prize building project of the divine architect of God, our creator. But that's exactly what's happened. It's the height of arrogance for men to assert that he can improve upon the master's model. But that's exactly what's happening today in the world of religion. Well, let's go back. We read Deuteronomy 12, verse 13 through 15. I believe it was verse 31. And how it was very important in a very particular place, God would tell them where, that would be where they were to worship. That gives a little insight to the discussion in John chapter 4, I believe. Now, today, it doesn't have to be in this particular or that particular city, but they had a pattern back then that was set up. It's a couple interesting stories. One's found in Joshua 22. Last time I preached, I read this, but it's such a lengthy reading, I think I'll just sum up what happens in Joshua 22. God's people have now entered in the promised land. The two and a half tribes that were settled on the other side of the Jordan had come over and they helped to run out all of the invading or all the enemy people there and conquered all of those nations. And so God had told the original two and a half tribes, okay, you can go back to your families, you can settle down now, and everybody can live a happily ever after. And it should have been just a very glorious time in Israel. But it wasn't very long till the sound of war was ringing through Israel because they heard that those two and a half tribes already have gone and they've set up another altar. They're going to worship God in a place that God has not assigned for them to worship. And they said, suit up, boys. We're going to war. And so they loaded up. They packed up and they headed to fight. They were going to fight. It was going to be a civil war. Unity was threatened because at least their perception was those folks, our brethren, have decided they're going to edit the pattern. They're going to tear up the pattern and, and do their own thing. Well, when they meet up, they find that that's not the case, thankfully. They find out that they built this other altar, but they never had any intention of worshiping there, but they were only setting that up as a memorial to, for them 
of what God had done for them. But the point remains, there was about to be a battle there because God's people understood that you don't change God's ways. You don't alter God's patterns. And in another story, it doesn't end quite so positive. We read about a man that we don't read a whole lot about. In, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 2 says, it's a summary of his life. Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. I don't know all the things that he did wrong. I don't know all the areas in which he messed up and violated God's will. But in the same chapter, we see the one thing, and perhaps the big thing, in which he erred. In 2 Kings chapter 16, uh, read with me if you will in this, uh, this little story and see what happened here. How did he violate the pattern? Again, we're looking back to the Old Testament at the things written aforetime. What can we learn from these stories? Verse 10 says, Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. He's over in Syria and sees their altar, and something about it catches his eye, strikes him. He says, you know what? I think I like that design a little bit better than the design we have. And so he gets the pattern. He gets the design. He finds out all about the details of how it was built. Verse uh, 11 says, Then Uriah the priest built an altar, according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And Uriah did it. Like it was a big celebration, a great and happy time. This new altar. But this is the reason why, the biggest reason why, his name goes down in infamy. Because he decided he was going to switch things. And when it came to the altar of the Lord, God had said there was a, a very specific pattern, but he decided to change it. That's one pattern. Let's look at another. Let's go back now to the book of Genesis. And look at Genesis chapter 6. Here we're going to look at Noah's Ark. Now this was quite a building project. Ends up, it's going to be just four men. Noah and his three sons that are on this great project. But we find that there are specific instructions given. There's not a whole lot of details, at least as they're revealed to us in this chapter, but there are some specifics. We do get the blueprint. We can see a pattern here. Genesis 6, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, to go by the pattern, what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to use gopher wood. Now, if God had just said, build it out of wood, he could have used any kind of wood, but he specified gopher wood. Couldn't use any other kind of wood or he'd be violating the pattern. 
Verse 15. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. 450 feet. It's width 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. Those were not arbitrary numbers. That was God's plan. That's how he wanted it built. And if Noah would have done anything other than build it according to those instructions, you know what would have happened. That boat would have sunk and that would have been the end of mankind as we know it. Verse 16 says, You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks or stories. That's the way it had to be built. And Noah did not have the right to change it. He was given God's blueprint. Well, we have a lot more instruction when we come down a little bit further on the scene of time and we come to Moses. You know, Moses was given the great privilege of building the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was kind of like a tent-like structure. It was a temporary structure as they were traveling from place to place. But every time they set it up, it was to be set up just a certain way. And it's really amazing to notice all the details that are given. We're not going to read all those details. We'll read a little bit, though, from Exodus 25. If you would, turn to that place. And here he talks about the, the particular uh, furnishings of the tabernacle. He talks about the ark of the testimony, the table for the showbread, the golden lampstand, and all the details about the tabernacle itself. But in Exodus 25, verse 9, we read the following words. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so shall you make it. Think he had trouble understanding that? You think he had any interest in becoming creative and doing things his own ways? Moses? No, not our Moses. Look down at verse 40, same chapter. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Chapter 26, verse 30. They've got it at the beginning, got it in the middle, and got it at the end of these instructions. Verse 30 says, And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. It, it's quite clear, isn't it? God wanted Moses... And the children of Israel to understand, I have a pattern. You hear what my pattern is, you see what my pattern is, and you don't change it. You don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. This is my way. Can you imagine Moses tweaking the dimensions or changing some of the materials in the instructions that God gave? The thought is shocking. Well, of course not. Moses wouldn't do that. Let me come a little bit further down uh, the stream of time and we come to Solomon. David, of course, wanted to build the temple, but the Bible says that he was a bloody man, and for that reason he was not allowed to build it. But his son Solomon was. Solomon built that temple. Now we have a permanent structure, a place where God was to dwell. The mercy seat. Again, we see those instructions and carried out uh, with great detail. You think Solomon altered, changed any of those? Think he could improve? Do you think he thought he could improve? No, not Solomon. David, though, when it came to some of the uh, instructions given concerning the Ark of the Covenant, going back now to the uh, tabernacle, 
when it came to the Ark of the Covenant, made a mistake. You'll remember that with Uzzah. And after that mistake and the correction was made, I like the words that, J that uh, David uses in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 to describe the lesson that he had learned. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 12 through 15. He said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves and make yourselves holy, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order or after the due order. So the priests and Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. They did it after the due order. They followed the pattern. They, did, they followed the instructions according to the blueprint, the form, the model. And everything went well. And so it is. We learn over and over and over again. When God says to build something, he wants it built according to his plan. He wants it built according to his specification. If you don't learn anything else from the Old Testament, that's one of the great lessons that you should be able to learn. You know, many people believe today, now we're making a switch because we've talked about some things that were built in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, there's something pretty special that God had designed to build, isn't there? Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 16? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now these, these items here that we see in the Old Testament were special. They were holy. They belonged to God, and he had special instructions concerning them. But now, this was his crowning creation. This was his greatest of all designs. His greatest building project of all time would be the church. His church. And so if after we look at the altar and the ark, the instructions and the violations according to the pattern, the tabernacle and the temple, and we come down to the New Testament, even though yet we have not noticed any New Testament scriptures on the idea of the pattern, does it not stand to reason that when we come to the church, we look for a pattern? When it comes to the plan of salvation that would allow one entrance into the kingdom of God, the church, when it comes to how we would worship as we assemble as the body of Christ, when it comes to the church government that we have within the body of Christ, doesn't it stand to reason that we learn something from the Old Testament? And everything in the church, we look for the pattern, we look for the model, we look for the blueprint. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, uh, I read just the other day, in fact, I see it in one of your bulletins or one of your your works is a quote about Dr. Leonidas Holland of Lipscomb University. Talking about the pattern, even in God's creation. Maybe someone has mentioned that here in a lesson before. But even in, in uh, the worldly matters, you can see certain patterns emerge. God's way and how he likes things, uniform and orderly. Anyway, this professor from David Lipscomb University discovered that all wrens, these little tiny birds, the South Carolina wren at least, whistle their tune or sing their song or whatever you want to call it, always in the key of G. Peculiar thing, isn't it? Interesting. I guess 
One of the beauties of that would be that they're always on key, and that would be nice, wouldn't it? For some, if we could just knew that we're always going to be on key, the disadvantage, I guess, would be that it's always the key of G. But this is a, a demonstration of the blueprint. God had a pattern, and every single time you see the same thing. But unfortunately, the religious world doesn't look at things like that. My mother sews, and some of you sisters sew here, I assume. If you had come up with a pattern of something or you were using a pattern, it would show a certain amount of disrespect. If you were to, I don't have a pattern with me, just try to imagine this. You saw a pattern, somebody asked you to sew it for them, and you just ripped the pattern that they, you were given, tore it apart, stomped on it, threw it in the trash, and said, I don't think I like that. I think I'll design my own pattern. Or for those of you who have worked on building projects, you've been given the blueprint, you're in charge of this specific aspect of the construction. You see the blueprint and you say, uh, I don't like that. You just start scratching through uh, this particular design or this particular dimension and you start making changes. How would the owner feel about that? Wouldn't feel too good about that. The one who had asked you or had uh, contracted with you to so that particular outfit wouldn't feel too good about that. Why is it that those are so easy for us to understand? We can grasp those so readily, but when it comes to the Lord and his blueprint and his pattern, all of a sudden people think they can start ripping and tearing and marking all over God's blueprint and God's pattern. I hope everyone here tonight understands some of you have heard this so many times, but those of you who are young understand that God has a pattern. We've seen it in the Old Testament. Let's look at it in the New Testament. A lot of times in recent years, I don't know how popular this is now, people go around saying, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And certainly that's a good idea. What would Jesus do? But in some of these things, when it comes to salvation and worship, what did Jesus say? What did the apostles say? What did the church do? Ask those questions. Find the answers to those questions, and you have the pattern that Jesus had provided for us in the church. Let's look at a couple of New Testament scriptures, though, that reinforce what we've already learned from the Old Testament. Bring back some of these directly from the Old Testament in the book of Acts. You remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gave that, that sermon before he was, became the first Christian martyr, died for preaching that sermon. Here's an excerpt in Acts 7, verse 44. He said, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. It's brought to the New Testament. Yes, it is, because it's still important for us today. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, beautiful book comparing the old and the new and how the old is perfected under the new. And Hebrews 8, verse 5, Paul writes, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, he shows that those, those things in the old were a shadow of the things, better things to come. And there's a connection made. And certainly we can see the connection between the old and the new and the importance of the pattern. And if you don't get that, then look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. There the Bible says, Paul says to the young man Timothy, hold fast, stay with it, 
Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's talking about a steadfast adherence here, Vine says. Just as Moses made all things according to the pattern, and just as Noah built the ark according to all that God commanded him, Genesis 6, 22, so must we follow the divine pattern found in the New Testament. Colossians 3, verse 17, teaching the same truth about the pattern. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Christ Jesus, or do all by the authority of, of Christ Jesus. Everything that we do in our worship, everything that has to do with church government and over and over again in many different areas, we need to have authority. We need to have the authority of the blueprint. So is there a pattern when it comes to salvation? Is there a pattern when, there comes, when it comes to salvation? Well, sure there is. Every time you will notice uh, something very interesting. It's not a coincidence and it's not an accident. It's part of the, plat the pattern that God had designed. Every time you find the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and baptism, you always find that baptism precedes the forgiveness of sins. We have the pattern uh, laid out so beautifully for us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, after that powerful sermon that Peter preached, the men and women were astonished and the men cried out. They were cut to their heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What was the response? We see the same response in different words, but the same facts are presented throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. Peter answered and said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, we're talking about the same thing. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, again, we see the emphasis placed on repentance. As you go through the book of Acts, time and time again, you see the same truths stressed and emphasized. In Acts chapter 8, we notice the importance of the confession. Remember Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. He'd heard about Jesus. The gospel was preached to him. He was, he was preached Christ. And when he heard Christ preached, what did he know? When he saw that water, he didn't want to wait till next week or sometime when they grab up a bunch of, bunch of folks, 20 or 30 people, we'll just go get baptized sometime down the road. He says, I want to do this now. Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And it was something that had to be done right now. Why? Because he had to get his sins forgiven. And so, what was the response? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. He had to believe, and that belief was something that needed to be expressed. And he said in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he went down into that water. He baptized them. They came both out of the water. And he went on his way rejoicing. We see the same pattern over and over and over again. So why would we want to see, or why would we want to tamper with that? Why do we want to say that, well, now actually we've got a, a new design and we think we can enlarge the membership roles if we just turn this uh, baptism right here, not into an absolute necessity, not something that is essential for salvation, but let's just make that, let's just make that optional. 
And let's just say, instead of being baptized, let's substitute something else in here. We're going to put something else in here, and we're going to call it the sinner's prayer. How about that? Now, that changed. Prayer is a big thing in the Bible. Prayer is talked about a lot, isn't it? Why, sure. We'll just slip that in there in the place, and that's a lot easier. In fact, we can have people just uh, send us a little letter or tell us over the phone that they put their hand over the, the TV set or the radio, and they prayed that sinner's prayer with us, and look at how fast our ministry is growing. What would that be? That would be an addition to the pattern. It's a subtraction and an addition. We can see that that wasn't tolerated under the, New, under the Old Testament. And we can see when we look at uh, the, the book of Genesis and the building of Ark that that would be absurd to make any changes. Why is it? We try to make those changes or that we would accept those changes in the New Testament. Well, you know one of the problems is? The average rank and file member, some of our friends and neighbors in town, they don't know what the pattern is. Because where they've been going, they hadn't heard what the pattern is. That's why it's our job to get the pattern to them. But what about when it comes to worship? Is there a pattern when it comes to worship? Sure there is. Some people say, well, you guys don't have music. Beautiful music in the body of Christ. We love music. God's people in the Old Testament, New Testament, we have always loved music. We, we love music. Back, back home, and I know there's people here that are talented enough to do that, we have professional musicians make their living. Uh, but when it comes to the worship, when we gather as God's people, we don't just offer up God anything. We don't just do. We just don't do like Ahaz did and go and look at the, the pagan altar and say, well, you know what? I like that. I think we'll bring that in and I think we'll use that to worship God. He, he acted like he was still worshiping God and honoring God. Great celebration, Ahaz thought. But he wasn't honoring God, was he? Because he strayed from the pattern. When it comes to music, what does the Bible tell us? Clearly. We find it in Ephesians 5, 19. Colossians 3, 16. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. Over and over and over again, the pattern calls for singing. So that's why that's all you're going to that's all you're going to hear here in the Lord's church, because it fits the pattern. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, sometimes people will visit from other congregations of the Church of Christ, and they'll come in and they'll look. And when that tablecloth is lifted and they see only one cup, they're confused. And some of them are startled. What is going on here? These people are a little behind the times. What are, why are they using just one cup? I'll tell you why we just use one cup. Because there's not any confusion, really. When you go to Matthew 26 and you read verse 26 through 29, and you read Mark 14, verse 22 through 25, and Luke 22, 19 and 20, and 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, there's not really any confusion. You know how many cups you find there? You find one cup containing the fruit of the vine. That's the pattern. The Bible doesn't have to say what it does say. The Bible doesn't have to make it as clear as the Bible does make it because we have a pattern. And we know what the Lord used in instituting that supper 
and we're going to keep it just the way he kept it. What about in the teaching? In 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Corinthians 11, is there a pattern there when it comes to the teaching? You know what happens? They all came together in one place. They all came together into one place. That was the pattern established way back then. They didn't divide up into a whole bunch of classrooms. Let's send the little kids over here and let's uh, uh, put the women over here and then the younger and the little ones and, and divide it all up like that. They didn't do that. They all came together in one place. And one person was teaching at a time, not a whole bunch of people. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, of course we have the pattern of just one man speaking of a at a time, but he also adds to that, it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. There's a pattern there when it comes to the teaching. And you can follow this down uh, when it comes to the worship. And you can follow this down when it comes to church government. That's the last thing we'll notice. Uh, uh, an idea that is just, uh, or an area in which the religious world has just totally abandoned the pattern. When you see this word, what do you think? What do you think of? When you see this word, what do you think of? When you see either of those words, one of the words that you should also think of is this word right here. You know why? Because the Bible makes it crystal clear that the pastor is a bishop and the bishop is an elder and the elder is a pastor and the elder is a bishop. They're all talking about the same office. But we've got, we've got religious institutions, the largest Christian professing institution that has turned this bishop into some ruler over several churches. One man over several churches. Listen, folks. That doesn't fit the pattern. God has established his pattern when it comes to church government, just like he did in the Old Testament. He's done it with the church. In Acts 20, verse 17 through 31, you can see this clearly laid out when uh, the, apo the Apostle Paul called the elders uh, of Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. Pastor is just a, the same form of the word shepherd. Shepherd, pastor. Bishop, uh, an overseer, same thing. And that is what the elder is responsible for doing. He is a pastor. He is an overseer. You know what we've got today? People say, Pastor, you know what they're talking about? They're talking about pulpit ministry. That's not going to get it. And sometimes I think in some of our congregations, we think that uh, a teacher is just uh, somebody who's a pulpit minister. Because we got a lot of places. Oh, let me teach. I want to teach. Let me teach this time. I was at a congregation one time. I thought we had a real good meeting. And I left. And I called back about six months later to see how things were going. And the brother said that I called said, well, I've quit the church. I said, oh, no. Something big. Something big has happened here. I said, well, what happened? I said, well, they still don't have me. Uh, teaching on Sunday morning. He quit the church because they didn't have him teaching on Sunday morning. Folks, I'm talking about teachers, but some of the greatest work that we can do is not going to be done standing up in front of everybody here, but it's going to be done in private. Even the great Apostle Paul said, I have taught you publicly and from house to house. And we've got people lining up to teach publicly, but in some places we can't find anybody who'll go house to house. We can't find anybody that will be studying on a one-to-one on -one basis or, or with a, a couple of different people in a, in a small setting. 
And the church is suffering when that's happening. Listen, a pastor is not somebody, if we ever get to that point where we have them in our congregation, in the congregation here, pastors, elders, bishops are talking about people that are looking after the flock. Pastor is a shepherd. He's caring for the sheep. He's looking for the, after the sheep, and he makes sure those sheep are okay. The religious world is totally lost sight of the Bible pattern when it comes to church government. There's supposed to be a plurality of elders. There's a religious group, um, a very a growing religious group, even carries the name the Church of Jesus Christ as part of their name. Has men calling themselves elders at the age of 18 have not met the most fundamental of the qualifications that are given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Listen, folks. God has a pattern. God has a pattern just like he had patterns in the Old Testament when it came to the ark, the altar, the tabernacle, the temple. He has patterns in the church. There is a particular pattern for salvation. There's a, a special pattern that's presented to us when it comes to the um, aspects of our worship. There's a pattern when it comes to church government. I'm sure you can think of other patterns. And you need to look for patterns in the New Testament. In Jude verse 3, another scripture that teaches us the pattern, pattern concept. The writer says, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It doesn't change every 100 years, every 200 years. Again, in Matthew 28, verse 20, there's a pattern given. Let me simplify it for you. Teach, baptize, teach. When he sent them out, before he ascended, after his resurrection, he says, I want you to go teach. I want you to baptize those that you teach that receive the gospel. And then I want you to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. There's a pattern here. This pattern should not change. Should never change until Jesus comes back. And we're not going to let it happen. We're not going to let it change here. We teach them. We teach them the truth. Those who respond to the truth, we baptize. After they're baptized, then we teach them to observe not some things, but all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And these people that have been taught all things, you know what they're going to do? They're going to start this over. They're going to teach them. They're going to baptize them. They're going to teach them. At what point can this cycle be broken? Never. Never if we want to honor and we want to glorify God. I hope this evening that the study has been helpful to you, been a reminder to you of how serious God is as an architect. He's got his projects. He's got his projects and his most precious building of all is the church of Jesus Christ. Are you a member of that church, that great institution? You don't have to be voted on to become a member. You don't join this church. In Acts chapter 2, we find that those who were baptized were added to the church. All you have to do is follow the same instructions. The same thing that made Christians back then will make you a Christian today. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to make that confession before men. You're willing to turn from a life of sin. Now, you don't have to be the most wicked sinner in the world to turn from sin. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've reached the age of accountability, you have sinned. You need to turn from sin. Turn your life over to God. That's what he's talking about. After you've done those steps, you're a fit subject for baptism. I wonder if there's someone here who has not obeyed the gospel plan, God's plan of salvation. You've heard it tonight. 
We encourage you, if you've not obeyed it, to come forward as we sing this song and become a child of God. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.